Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And despite all the craziness going on in the world, I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast is up to date with what's going on around the world. And so we're not even going to try to compete with all the other outlets out there. So instead, for the next hour and a half, hour or so, Let's take our mind off of current situations going on in the uh, military world and let's go back 80 years and just uh, kind of relax a little bit and uh, let's talk about what we're all here to listen to and that's World War II based content. And joining us as always is Henry Sledge and we have a guest tonight. I will allow Henry to introduce him, but Henry, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Not uh not functioning on as much sleep as I would have normally had. I had to get my son to football practice really early this morning, but uh, but I'm doing good. Football practice already? It's spring training. Prior to school? Yeah. I had to get him there at 0600 this morning. Wow. So. And his first mountain bike race over the weekend, so, you know. I saw that. That's fantastic. Uh, we'll have to get into yeah. that a little bit later. I don't want to leave our guest hanging out in the winds too yeah. long. So uh, go ahead and introduce our guest, and we'll get going. Okay. Well, uh, we've got a great guest tonight on What's a Scuttle Up podcast, folks. His name is Dave Holland. He is originally from the United States, but has resided in Australia for the past 28 years. Dave served eight years in the United States Marine Corps in infantry. From 2009 to 2013, he visited Guadalcanal a number of times, and from 2018 to 2020, he lived there full-time. He is a Guadalcanal battlefield guide and a member of several Solomon Islands battle conservation groups. Dave has assisted a number of authors and researchers with Guadalcanal material, and Dave Holland is currently working on a book featuring his time walking and researching the Guadalcanal battlefields. He also runs the YouTube and Facebook sites titled Guadalcanal walking a battlefield. So my buddy, my fellow Alabamian Dave <laughs> Holland, how are you tonight? Yeah, not too bad. In Australia, it's uh, in the afternoon. And I know why they in Alabama, being from Alabama, I fully understand why they uh, do football practice, <laughs> you know, preschool. Very serious. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I try to tell people that here and they go, what, what do you mean? Yeah. Mm. But I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, uh, you and Don both. Well, I imagine uh, getting the getting the kids used to starting football practice so early is probably advantageous in the summertime when the heat's extraordinary and the humidity's through the roof. So it probably is best to get them get them used to that early morning morning run, and the parents too. Yeah, they go two a days. I remember them in Alabama in the heat in August. Go two a days in the morning and the afternoon. Yes. Well, uh, Dave had a really good show on, on World War II TV. He's been on twice, and uh, I really enjoyed the Chesty Puller show a few days ago. So, yeah, uh, and that, Don, you know, it's it's uh, prophetic that what last week with Preston Stewart, we were talking about Chesty, and I was thinking about that. I'm like, man, too bad Dave couldn't be a part of this conversation. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, what we were talking about, what I was reading from the uh, Pellaloo Triagic Triumph book and some of the opinions they were posting in there about uh, Chesty Puller and 
how I kind of made the comparison to some of the ways that people felt that uh, Patton tend to have a little bit of a a little bit of a glory hound role and kind of how in the PTO at least that uh, Chesty Puller filled that position for at least as the media was concerned they wanted that that uh, news hound kind of headline guy and he he filled that that role pretty well at least according to some of the opinions in that book mm-hmm. so Dave uh, just one of the things we like to do when we first have people on the show obviously um, Henry just gave us the rundown but if you want to just give us a little bit of a background maybe uh, skip ahead to um, what got you to make that move to uh, the Guadalcanal area and the Solomon Islands and how you got so heavily invested in the history of Guadalcanal? Oh, yeah, um, that's probably a good question. Um, <clears throat> I, I work for the Australian government, so uh, been in Australia, they, they obviously have a, an interest in the um, South Pacific and in Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands in general. So I had the opportunity to travel there on a number of times um, through work, which is great, you know didn't come out of my pocket, so to speak. <laughs> Those are the best uh, trips. Best trips, yes. Um, so uh, being a former Marine and being a military history nut, you know, I was in my element on Guadalcanal, and I thought, well, you know, my short trips there, I used to do as much um, out-of-work times as I could, exploring the battlefield and taking people on battlefields and, and giving battlefield um, uh, studies and things like that. I mean, when you, even when the Australian Army was over there, I used to give – He's called battlefield studies, and we used to um, have the, the NCOs and officers would run them through um, like uh, terrain appreciations and analysis, and you know what would they do in their uh, if they had the same situation. So I'd run a few of them, and then in 2018 um, I got a full two-year deployment to the Solomon Islands. So I was going to take my time there, and I thought, well, I'll really, really drill down on um, on the things that it needed to be drilled down on. I mean, because a lot of people who they go to Guadalcanal. They'll go for a week-long tour on, in the tour groups, and they hit the main areas like Bloody Ridge, and you know they go to Tulagi and uh, and um, um, Alligator Creek, but they miss some of the off-the-tour spots. They're very, very important in the campaign. So it allowed me time to really drill down in those spots that uh, people don't get to visit. And um, and all my free time I was over there, I spent, and even during my work time, uh, I got to spend a bit of time doing it because my commanders and my bosses there was pretty good. I mean, every time we have VIPs or would come through in the through the Australian government and and even in the U.S. government, I was the man who would, would take them around. So I was doing that in my work time too. So it was almost like my my, my government job was my secondary employment. Would they usually? Would these people you were taking around, Dave? Did they like have a pretty good? basis of knowledge of the campaign, and they they gave you a list of places they wanted to see or. Were they just handed over to you and you were told, hey, show these people the iconic sites of Guadalcanal? How did that usually well, play out? Oh, yes. The, with the, the VIP trips, yes. It would generally, you know, I don't know if you've done a VIP trip. It's like uh, we've got some spare time. Uh, this person's a, you know, a government official or, uh, say, U.S. officer that may have a general interest in, in Guadalcanal. And, and generally, yeah, I didn't say to me, or drill down deep and want to know the full details. I did take the Australian Prime Minister and his wife around, and they, were, they had a good interest in it, even though there's no Australians at Guadalcanal. You know, they asked the right um, pertinent questions. Well, it was hugely the, um, relevant for them, you know. Oh, yes. At the same time, they were, oh, yeah, at the same time, you know, they were fighting. You know, Guadalcanal and the, 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 
I guess Americans had the right hand and the left hand at the same time. The Americans and the Australians were on Kokoda in, in Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. So they were heavily involved in Papua New Guinea. Um, but uh, I, I took a lot of people around on tours there. And I did have some, I would uh, consider hardcore tourists. Mm-hmm. People would actually would travel over there just for the, to spend the time and, and delved in a lot of information. I had a big background on Guadalcanal. So, mm-hmm. yeah. but when you have big groups, you know, you, you cater to, to all, all types. You have some that have a, a general interest and some have a real deep, keen interest. So when you mm-hmm. take a group out, the first thing you do is just um, make an assessment of, uh, I guess, cater to your audience and see who you're dealing with and then, then go from there. All right. When it comes to some of those spots you were talking about earlier about, you know, everybody goes to the normal areas that we've all read about, but you want to try to fill in the, the voids, if you will, and some of those combat some of those engagements and areas that people know less about um if you had to think of a handful of those which one do you i I don't want to say enjoy using the word enjoy when it comes to talking about combat's a little rough but out of those spots that you feel don't get enough um notice and um spotlight shine on them which one do you enjoy the most um taking people to and that you would want to share with our audience kind of get people to realize you know it's this particular location is just as important as all the rest of them yes i mean there's a, a number of them but one in particular is a place called coffin corner now coffin corner was involved from the uh, the 24th to the 27th of, of october it was a uh, considered part of the battle over henderson field and coffin corner was probably the most concentrated uh, site of, of three main japanese assaults throughout the campaign it was the largest uh, japanese assault uh, site and a lot of people don't even know about Coffin Corner. I mean, they know like John Baslin was involved in that probably of, I'd say six or 700 yards away. But the, um, the rest of his battalion in the U.S. Army, the 164th Regiment, you know, they became very instrumental in stopping the Japanese. And I'd go as far as to say Coffin Corner was the last Japanese offensive attack in the Pacific Theater in World War II. I mean, you had some bonsai attacks later, obviously, in other campaigns, but there were bonsai attacks when the concentrated offensive attacks. The Japanese on Guadalcanal was on the offensive. And they wasn't on the defensive. It was only until the January battles in the U.S. Army involving Mount Austin, where we know as the thin red line in the movies and books, they became mm-hmm. on the defensive. But they were only just standing by to the rest of the guys could come over and go on offensive again. So to answer the original question, Coffin Corner. And it's, um, it's the only place on Guadalcanal that I've been that it kind of makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. I mean, because... The, um, the Japanese were pushing into a small track called the Jeep Trail there, and they concentrated their attacks because it was the only trail that would go through the jungle and it would link up to a place called Fighter uh, Airstrip Number 1. So there was an auxiliary field for uh, Henderson Field. So they concentrated their attacks at, this, at, the, um, at the corner of the jungle in Coffin Corner, and they had a, a Marine who basically said if he was a coffin maker, he'd be a millionaire. Wow. They, the, the bodies were just honestly stacked up in rows and and that was the Marines and the Army. That was for their uh, unit, I guess, designation uh, uh, was. So you had 7th Marines on one side, and you had the 164th in the other. Mm-hmm. And normally it's a good delineation lines between units and, you know, on landmarks such as a creek or a road or a track. And that track was a delineation line between the 7th Marines and the 164th. But it was an avenue of approach that the Japanese needed to go through, and they just concentrated in columns straight into that uh, that road. And the Marines had two 37 millimeter guns and a number of 50 cal and 30 caliber machine guns 
in a, a, a whole lot of BARs all concentrate in that one spot. Which is a Japanese. natural bottleneck. And they, so they yeah. were, once you disable that first one in the column, and as they tend to try to do the one in the back of the column, then everybody's kind of stuck and it's just take them as you, you can. Where geographically is Coffin Corner on Guadalcanal? Is it near Alligator Creek, Tenery River, um, some of those areas? Yeah, so if you go down Alligator Creek or Illy River, and it's basically, I'd say, 400 meters at the end of Illu, Illu River or Alligator Creek. So it's facing toward the, the south. And then it takes a, a L shape and it goes straight onto Bloody Ridge. So if you go between Bloody Ridge and if you go probably due east from Bloody Ridge, about, I'd say, 1,800 yards, you'll hit Coffin Corner. Wow. And then it coffin corner, then it made an L shape. So it's the corner that is the L shape. So it's the corner of the jungle. That's why I call it the corner. Sure. So the jungle and, and the lines actually turned into an L shape. As you explore the, or when you explored those areas, Dave, did you, because I know in one of your videos, it may have been the one on uh, Edson's Ridge where you're, it's like you're in somebody's backyard. You know, you see <laughs> villagers with their kids moving around. Did you ever have to go, Hey, uh, you know, I want to, I'm investigating this aspect of the battle. Can I walk through your property? Was that ever an issue or does everybody just kind of leave people alone? They know they're exploring or. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's like anything you get to know the people there and uh, bloody Ridge is actually, it's called the bloody Ridge peace park. It's only national park on in the Solomon Island. And you had a, a number of, um, people over the years like John Ennis which was an Australian expat that lived there great battlefield historian unfortunately he's passed away he was instrumental in making it a peace park so you have squatters who actually live there so they're not even supposed to be there they're wow. supposed to be moving off 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 the um the land but the government's taking their, their time so you know they really don't um don't bother you I mean I've used to walk through and say hello and the good things about the Solomon Islands the Melanesian culture a smile to get you everywhere a smile and be friendly it's just like I'm sorry, humans anywhere, but those guys are really, really super friendly. Um, they don't have any taboos against filming around them or, um, you know, them themselves. They'd love to be, they're very photogenic. <clears throat> they love to be um, photographed. So I didn't have any dramas mm -hmm. uh, doing that, that free range, so to speak. Did you see a lot of, because uh, I know when I was on Peleliu, you know, the, the, the Tritus of Wars everywhere. I know in some of your videos, I've seen you point out like a ration can or a fragment of a grenade or something. I mean, is that kind of thing just everywhere around Guadalcanal still to this day? Uh, to this day, yes. It's getting less and less. Is Once the locals start working out, they, they call it the uh, white fella goes crazy over rust. They said all oh, white fellas love rust. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, they, they'll still sell a white fella any rust. That's you need to put that on a shirt but, <laughs> for your tour. But um. The first time I went there in 2009, I mean, for example, on, on Bloody Ridge, it was the, the locals, they set fires. They, they burned the, the, the grassland to, to build the little, um, uh, I guess, uh, gardens, Sava gardens and things. So mm -hmm. when every time they burn it, it used to be all this stuff on top of the ground. I mean, not even under the ground, I'm talking about on top of the ground. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine there's a lot of unexploded ordnance there. Oh, boy. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a problem, a real problem, especially last year, was a number of Solomon Islands and actually two um uh, there's a uh, a british and australian who died there from unexploded war it's just uh, last year alone there's a number of really? injuries that happened 
Yeah, that's the thing about the tourists who come in and, you know, they'll run up and they'll say, look, you know, here's some relics. And, you know, I can see why they do it. It's a third world country. But what that does is, it, especially the young kids, they go out and they'll dig up these relics and they'll dig up this unexploded ordinance and put themselves at danger just to sell it sure. to the tourist, you know, who, who wants some of this stuff. And I can see why they, they would do it. And I've had a number of them run up to me before and go, hey, hey, look at this. Mm, yeah, and, um, look at this egg. They call <laughs> oh, it an egg. Oh, okay, that's a, that's a Japanese hand grenade. No, that's a mm. Japanese name order. And that's American frag. So, yeah, I think we need to put it down. And, and don't do that anymore. Well, I'm so, glad. But there's stuff. There's stuff everywhere. I can, that's the stuff on top of the ground. There's heaps of stuff underneath the ground. Well, I'm glad the conversation. Imagine, I'm, yep. I'm glad the conversation went this way because I was going to bring up for Henry did on an unrelated note. I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos of cats who are out hunting out in the uh, western of the United States. And when Henry and I were growing up, one of the things, and I'm sure you're familiar with this too, was young kids used to collect uh, arrowheads from Native Americans. They'd be out in mm -hmm. the woods and they'd find arrowheads. Well. It's gotten to the point now where arrowheads are getting harder and harder to find. The rule of thumb, at least amongst people who appreciate it, is you pick up the arrowhead, you inspect it, you take it for what it's worth, and you put it back in order to preserve that history. Because if everybody takes it, there's not going to be anything left for people to see in the future. And I was kind of wondering, has the Solomon Islands kind of gotten to that point now where people, especially with what you do, people come down, they see something, they want to pick it up, and they kind of want to take it so as a souvenir, but you're kind of like, why don't you leave it here for the next group to come in so they can see it and appreciate the history for what it is? Or is there just so much stuff out there we haven't gotten to that point? It's just take it. It's it's just all over the place. Yes. Yeah, every time you get the tourists there, they'll say something on the ground. We say, especially on the um, uh, the Bloody Ridge Peace Park or the Bloody Ridge uh, National Park, don't don't pick up anything. One, they shouldn't be picking up anything if you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Blow your hand off or get injured. Or, yeah, but they say just a, everyone wants, you know, especially these hardcore tourists, wants a bit of a relic from Guadalcanal, you know, piece of shrapnel or a spoon or a webbing buckle, let's just pick it and put it in our pocket. And, you know, they had a, a tendency at one stage, the National Museum, because some of the stuff was going to the National Museum, but obviously being a third world country, you know, depends on who you knew there. If you went there and you asked for uh, relics, they would sell it to you. So that, mm -hmm. Yeah, that didn't get didn't get too well on that. Um, yeah, but I know you got to remember Guadalcanal after after the campaign was over in February '43, it became a major logistical and training base. Sure. So right. you've got these camps that hold divisions. Like the Terry had the whole Third Marine Division. The Sixth U.S. Marine Division was born on Guadalcanal yeah. in 1944. So you got still all those camps there, and you have thousands and thousands of U.S. Army, Navy and um, Marines training on Guadalcanal. They, I read somewhere, I don't know if we can even verify it, but over a million Americans passed through Guadalcanal during the war. Wow. It was a major, major base. In fact, before the war, the capital of the British Solomon Islands was Tulagi. They had like a little colonial seat over there, and there was random villages through the, um, um, on the coast of at Guadalcanal Island. America built a medium-sized U.S. city, basically on Guadalcanal, and then when the Americans left, the British came back in and says, oh, we're not going to Tulagi, we'll go to Guadalcanal, you built us a city. So that city today is called Haniara, which is the capital city. It was made, mm -hmm. Americans built that from scratch. The road network is still there. They want the Americans to come back in and, and build the roads back because you know, I don't think the potholes have been fixed since 1945. <laughs> I know researching, you know, reading through my dad's manuscript, like, like we've talked about, um, I've been struck at how much time he spent on Guadalcanal. And it's 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 made me because I've always read about the iconic 
parts, you know, Robert Leckie and Edson and all those, and Chesty Pillar and all those things. But, you know, yeah, man, I mean, First Marine Division was training there. They would go on maneuvers there coming down from Pavuvu, which is, Pavuvu is what, 60 miles up the slot from Guadalcanal? I think it's 30. It's in the Russell Islands. <clears throat> Probably from the, the, the western, sorry, the eastern part of, no, sorry, the western part of Guadalcanal as you go up the slot. I'd say it's maybe 30 or 40 miles. It might be 60 miles. I have to double check it from the from there. It's yeah. not that far at all. The Russell, it's probably is 60 miles. You're right, Henry. Yeah. So I never, I always wanted to get there. I flew over it a couple of times. I really tried to get out there to the uh, the old Pavuvu camps. And I've I've spoke to some people who's been there, the locals. And you know, the whole the camp's not there, but you can still see a lot of the remnants of the Pavuvu training right. camp. Not the airfield's still there and a few other things. Going back to what going Go back ahead. to what Henry said about his father and all the you know, times he spent training there. When you you read like the Robert Leckies and the Guadalcanal Diaries and, you know, the firsthand accounts from the guys who fought on the island, then went on other campaigns and then circulated back for their training exercises. That's one of the things that they always had a hard time. They're like, wow, this does not look like the Guadalcanal we remembered when we landed here because so much logistics and um, infrastructure was put in for the training facility that, from what I understand, it just looked completely different. And so I'm just like, oh, wait, this is the same place? and Because th that's how much it changed and how much infrastructure is put in there. So um, I read a good story one time by a veteran, a Marine veteran from the 1st Marine Division, who was the first group that went in. And he was at a reunion years later. And this one guy was in the room talking about, oh, Guadalcanal, you know, when I was there, you know, the mules. And he goes, mules? <laughs> like, what mules were Guadalcanal? So – the Guadalcanal is in three phases. Three veterans, they consider themselves three phases of Guadalcanal. So you had the first Marine Division in the first, say, three months. Mm -hmm. And then you had the U.S. Army in the, in the second Marine Division that came in after that, who was in the land campaign. And then after that, um, basically, you had the guys who would go there and either uh, guys in the air campaign that was running air missions out of there or the training and logistics. So he's this one veteran said to this guy was talking about the mules. He said, if he said, I never seen any mules on Guadalcanal. If he had seen any mules on Guadalcanal, we would have ate them in the yeah. first, you know, in the first first um, few months there. But he'd bring mules, the army did bring mules in in January to try to negotiate some of that terrain. Yeah, it's almost like uh if you didn't come to Guadalcanal on the George S. Elliott, it's not the same, it's not the <laughs> same experience. Oh, yes. And even the guys on it went to you know, to this day, you still got veterans. You know, I was on the main, they call it the, the MSR, you know, main resistance line or the main, the front line and you guys behind the rear. And, mm -hmm. you know, even the guys that was there from the 7th of August, and even the mortarmen used to say, oh, you're the support guys. Or I mean, the rifle would tell the mortarmen, you're the support guys or the machine gunners, you're the support guys because you're about three steps behind me. So you're always going to have that but, uh, yep. animosity. Yeah, yep. not animosity, but I guess it's friendly banter. You know, I was thinking you're talking about how we were talking about after it was captured and throughout the war, Guadalcanal is being used for staging and training. I lived down here in Fort Myers, Florida, and we have a place called Page Field, and um, it was actually a Marine Corps base during uh, World War II. And um, a buddy of mine's family, they've been down here for the long term. They used, they used to be cattle ranchers, and they have access to a little bit of land. Most of it's been sold out for development, but they got this cattle pasture that's in, in the general vicinity of where the gun ranges were when the Marines were down here. And over my display case, we'd go out there shooting and fishing. 
over my display case, I got like 30 cal rounds that just lost velocity from the target range. They never hit anything. They just lost velocity, and they're like they're in their full shape. And I'm sure you probably see all kinds of stuff like that around Guadalcanal. Oh yes, especially in from the my, training areas. In one of my um, uh, videos, I think it's Guadalcanal or Bloody Ridge relics. And I'm I'm walking through there in the middle spur, and I'm describing. You can see how the bullets are yawned and hit. And there's the impact area is, is against the um, the berm where the Marines were firing their machine guns at the Japanese, going through the Japanese or missing the Japanese, and hitting this middle spur. And the bullets are just tumbling out, and you can just see them in different forms. And you can just anywhere you go there, you can scrape it. It's like going to Iwo Jima. When I went to Iwo, I went to Iwo Jima in '89, and I described it as like a giant uh, artillery range. I don't know how it is now, but it was just shrapnel and stuff everywhere, bullet casings everywhere. It looked like an uncleaned or unpleased firing range to me. Mm-hmm. Here's a question for you. Um, more towards the battlefield tour world. I, I'm sure most of our listeners are the same way as I am. Um, I, it would be a dream of mine to go down to that area, whether it's Pelu or Guadalcanal, one of those battlefields. When someone's planning a trip like this and getting hooked up with an organization such as yours, what are some of the things that uh, the casual battlefield tourist who's never done it before, especially in a climate such as where you're at, what are some of the things they should plan for to make their experience more um, enjoyable, um, more, I guess, longer lasting? I'm sure you get some people down there who don't anticipate the heat, the humidity. Maybe they're not as active as they should be, and that's probably a long day out in the woods, I, w- I would expect. What are some of the things that you suggest to first-time people who are planning, who would love to come down there maybe to plan ahead for to get the best out of that experience? Yes, it's probably – you already mentioned one. It was the, the heat. It's hard to describe the heat of Guadalcanal. It's only a few degrees off the equator, and it really, really sucks the, the energy out of you. I mean, you can be in real good shape, but if you're not acclimatized, it really sucks the energy out of you. I don't know if you could climatize to Guadalcanal. Um, <laughs> is try to be as best shape you can. Obviously, water is an issue. I mean, you go through water very quickly over there. Um, mosquitoes, mosquitoes, just like it is uh, was back in the um, in the forties. It's just crazy now. So any type of, I guess, mosquito repellent clothes you can get them now. And obviously, enough mosquito repellent itself you can spray on you. Um, obviously, read up on the battlefields and as much as you can maybe just do a few walks and heel walks because there's a lot of um heels up there if you really want to get the best out of it just maybe maybe in your fitness wise just do a little bit of heel work yeah because i can imagine probably very few of these locations are within 20 yards of a bus stop i'm sure there's a lot of (laughs) a lot of hiking and climbing yeah not that much i mean they'll, they'll actually take you out quite to a number of places right up to it i mean especially some of these uh, taxi drivers and the bus drivers they have with the tour groups up so, you know you think well that bus will never get down that road but it does or go up that <laughs> hill but it does there's one place though it's to me it's the most perfect preserved battlefield on guadalcanal and that's the um the galloping horse so that's hill 53 so that was what the movie or the movies there been two movies i think of the red line and the book the thin red line by the veteran james jones it uh depicts that action even though his his um book was a fiction book it's based on uh, reality he was actually wounded up on the galloping horse it's most perfect reserved battlefield but it's off the tour groups because it's just so hard to assess or access to get up to it it's just straight up this hill and it will suck it out of you I mean if you go into my video and it's called uh, the charles davis Medal of honor and thin red line 
yeah, you're, you're sucking some wind when you get up there. And I guarantee you there's just killed, oh, I'll say killed, but it's de destroyed many of fellows. In fact, that's a great battlefield study of how um, lack of water will stop a unit in its, in its track. So the, the second and the third battalions of the 27th regiment was the Wolfhound regiment. They only, that was the first action they had of, if you don't count Schofield barracks, they were part of the 25th division. And they underestimated the terrain. So that's all open um, car ridges straight into the sun. So they only had one canteen of water. In those days, they only issued them one canteen of water. And, they, you know, it took years, especially in the Marines, for them to get two canteens of water. But it did really um, destroy their attack because they couldn't get – they ran out of water during the day, and they couldn't get them resupplied. And then they started their attack. The third battalion started attack the, the second day, and they just – few mortar machine guns, and they stopped. And they sent the second battalion up to relieve them. And they ran out of water, and it was only just a, a brief thunderstorm that came through that enough to quench their thirst for them to continue on and, and take the hill. And that was the one with Charles Charles Davis. He earned a medal of honor. And and the the thin red line, the, the, the actor John Cusack, he um, loosely plays the part of Charles Davis. You know when he jumps okay. up and with his with his pistol and rifle and takes out the bunkers, blows his blows his whistle. And he was yeah. always supposed to be a diversion. So. So, so that's the galloping horse action. And that's the galloping horse. Go so if you look at the top of my even to this day, if you go on Google Earth and flip it, flip it upside down, so to speak, mm -hmm. and you can see the outline of a galloping horse, and right beside it, you can see the outline of a seahorse, and they call it the seahorse. That was what the thirty-fifth um, regiment of the twenty-fifth inch division. They had to take out the seahorse. That was mm -hmm. to isolate a place called the Gifu, which was on on Mount Austin. Right. And, um, is it a best preserved battlefield? Is it up around? Because uh, I remember my dad said that when they were on maneuvers there, they went and saw them. You know, when the Tokyo Express was running transports in, and they they weren't there three up. Was it Tassafaranga Point where they? I mean, just three of them pretty much came right up to the shore and just were wrecked. Yeah, it was four, four actually, and they're still four there. Well, the remnants okay. are still still there Is today. It, that was the yeah, that was the naval battle of Guadalcanal and. The, in mid-November, so that was the, the the Japanese were going to um, proceed with another offensive, actually, and that's what stopped them with the 38th Division. You know, they were going to replicate what they did in October with you know the battleships coming in and blasting right. Harrison Field and destroying airfields so they can unload in the day. And then Are America, those transports? Is there anything left of them to this at yeah. this point in time? Yeah, there's one. Um, oh, I can't pronounce the. It's is it the Yamayaka Maru or the? Uh, I'd have to. It starts with a K, but it's a Benigi, Benigi Beach. It's a popular diving diving area. Um, after the war, they scrapped them. They scrapped them at the um, the waterline. And yeah. you always see the picture that the, starts with a K, Maru. It's the one that's sticking, the bow sticking out of the water like this. Mm -hmm. All the veterans always had their photos taken with it. You know, when they went to Guadalcanal, you know, after the, the fighting, because the 6th Marine Division camps were up and down that area too, right in front of it. So there's a lot of pictures of that, a lot of pictures of it. But the other ones were that was the furthest, um, closest to Henderson, so to speak. Then it went all the way up the, up the um, the beach, going, going to the um, east. Mm -hmm. Sorry, west. Yeah. Just to circle back real quick, you guys heard me type, and I I knew the answer, but I want to make sure I had it right. You're talking about water supplies and how at the time, they were only issued one canteen. That's only a quarter of a gallon of water. So <laughs> if you can imagine trying to make that quarter of a gallon of water last and then even when they start issuing two then you only have half a gallon i mean that's still not a lot of water for that environment well i went up if you look at my video at the end 
I took a 600 mil mil bottle, which you know not that much, probably roughly. I don't know. I have to do the calculations, but I took it up just to see. I was stupid. I don't know why I did it. And it, you know, and no one was shooting at me, and I wasn't sprinting up hills and things like that. And it 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 wrecked me. You know, I was fully acclimatized. I can imagine. But you, you, some of these photos, if you see some of the early photos, and speaking of some of the vets, the veterans' memoirs. They grabbed Japanese canteens the first instance they could oh, sure. get. And some of them actually had bamboo, like Puller. I was reading about Puller and his guys when they first landed on an island. They had um, strips of bamboo. The bamboo, they'd cut it. They'd plug the ends, like the, and the natives, locals mm -hmm. were showing them. they fill that full of water. So they, they were trying to keep as much water as they could. You get a minute, these green troops, especially non-acclimatized, as soon as they landed, you know, even though their NCOs and officers are saying water discipline, water discipline, they were sucking down the water left and right. It's hard to get watery supply. Yeah, because and in fact, you see that that photo behind you. I don't know if is it a photo of them yeah. going across Alunga. Yep. If you look, if you blow it up, the guy probably over your right shoulder, Don. He's dipping his canteen into the Lunga. There's a couple of them that dip their canteens into the Lunga. That's not the uh, Matanikau River either. Sometimes you see mislabeled Matanikau. That's the Lunga That's, River. I was about to say. I thought the caption on that photo because I love that photo. It's one of my favorite ones ever. And I thought it was captioned as Matanikau, but it's the Lunga. Yeah, it's the Lunga. We know exactly where that is. You know, my, my friend Peter Flahaven, you probably know him. He um Guadalcanal then and now his photos and yeah, he spent years researching then and now's and you can see once you work out where it is and the bend in the river really gives it away. But yeah, you can see those guys and there's actually a larger photo of that. That's a whole almost it's a company moving across. The fifth Marines too. I don't know which battalion, but they're moving across. That's the fifth Marines area where they're at. And they're behind the lines. You know, I've seen some people say, oh, you know, they're not dispersed and the weapons are not at ready, but they're behind the lines. The main, the main line of resistance is probably another, you know, four or 500 meters from the, from the Lunga at that stage. That's where the fifth Marines had their line at on it, that side of the perimeter. You know, you're talking about making that hike with a little bit of water and we're talking about, you know, not being shot at and not carrying heavy packs, but, Everything back then was so damn heavy. And I think of Sid Phillips in this situation being Guadalcanal. There's more guys carrying, you know, one guy carrying the base plate that weighed 50 pounds on top of everything else. The guy carrying the tripod and the main tube and all that stuff. Even as a living historian, I had the privilege and the downside of carrying a bar for an entire eight hour tactical event one day. And that this stuff is heavy and cumbersome and at least in a tactical living history event, I once again, don't have the, you know, the, the horrors of actually someone trying to kill me just living in that environment, having such little water, carrying such heavy weapons. And then the mosquitoes, the bugs and all the other things. That's one of the things I really appreciated about the HBO's miniseries of Pacific is they talked about the dysentery, the diarrhea and all the horrible things of war other than trying to be killed by your enemy, but nature and bacteria and and just living in those environments, trying to survive, let alone trying to survive not getting shot, but just trying to survive daily life and living in that type of environment. Um, I don't think a lot of people consider that when they when they research this stuff. And I'm sure when they come down to Guadalcanal and take a tour, it, it probably uh, provides a lot of clarity to that, I would assume. <laughs> Yes, it does. They, they learn very quickly, especially when the heat, when they have to walk 100 meters into the jungle. And I've seen people walk 100 meters into the jungle and they can't even find their way out. And it's in broad daylight. And, yeah. Yeah. And they are, oh, you know, and they can't spend it. There was 
one of the taxi drivers there, um, he had a guy, he goes, ah, crazy white fella. And that's you know, <laughs> not to be disrespectful. That's what they call him, crazy white fella. Said he came up to, said, uh, take me up to Bloody Ridge. So he took him up to Bloody Ridge. And he goes, okay. He goes, I want to stay the night here. He goes, what do you mean you'll stay the night? He goes, I'm going to stay the night. I'm going to walk down that jungle there. I'm going to stay the night. He goes, okay. He said, you come pick me up in the morning. He goes, okay. He said, he come picked him up in the morning. He had to go find him. And he said, look, the guy, you know, he'd been in the jungle for like years. And he'd come, you know, something out of, you know, you know, you know, Mr. Livingston, Stroud, the jungle. Oh, I'm Stanley. Was he traumatized? Yeah, I haven't seen you for a while. God, you know, be yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah, and he's, I'm never doing that again. I could only imagine, expect just because I mean, anybody who's watched what an episode of different noises too. There, I was saying, anybody who watches out. an episode of Naked and Afraid knows in the jungles when all the bugs come out <laughs> at night. So I mean, uh, just lack of research. I nope. Exactly. <laughs> I live in Florida. I know how creepy crawly things get in wet, damp areas. I couldn't imagine being down in there, down in the uh, mm. Guadalcanal. But the mosquitoes are just as bad as they say, and then, you know, the jungles is just as bad. And um, you know, these guys, just for putting a bit in perspective, in October, nineteen forty-two, the first Marine Division had over two thousand men um, hospitalized for malaria alone. Cause malaria started kicking in cause you know, they landed in the first of, of August and malaria really started kicking yeah. in and they didn't take their, you know, anti-malaria medication or anything like that. And it really started kicking in. And in fact, when they, I don't know if you know this story, when they finally left Australia, they sent them to all, Oh, sorry. Left, um, Guadalcanal, they sent them to Australia mm-hmm. and they sent them in a place called Cape, uh, Camp Cable. And that was where the 32nd, uh, U S division had been training and Camp Cable is Northern, Australia near Brisbane, outside Brisbane, which is uh, a subtropical, um, and it was in a swampy area. So they stuck the fifth Marine as soon as they came out the first echelon into there. So in the MacArthur and Vandegrift, the division commander told MacArthur, they said, look, you know, we need to move these guys to a better climate, move them down, say, South, South Australia, you know, where it's cooler and, you know, you don't have mosquitoes. MacArthur, you know, dug his heels in and said, no, it's not going to happen. So it's only the local Australian authorities who basically said, look, you've got the population, you know, some like 30, 40,000 at that stage in Brisbane. And you got a, you know, a rampant division here just full of uh, mosquitoes carrying malaria who's going to infect the whole population. Mm-hmm. So then they resented and resented and sent them back down to um, or sent them to Melbourne. They split them up around Melbourne. So that was the only, only way they got to go to those camps and, you know, looking at Pacific series, you know, they love Melbourne. They love Australia. Yeah. I mean, I can kind of understand the, the hierarchies delusions about keeping your men hard and, and all that and keeping them in a climate in which they're going to be living in when they're out in the battlefield. But when you're coming off a of Guadalcanal or a long campaign and your guys are supposed to be refitting and rehabilitating, it's hard to do when you're not living in at least two steps up of a better condition. I mean, it's hard to, get your guys training and healthy again when they're living in the same garbage they just came from. So it's a little, exactly. it's a little bizarre that they would go that hardcore because, you know, we talked a couple episodes back, uh, Pavuvu. Oh, we flew over it. It looks good. But they say, you know, if they would actually got out of the plane and stepped four feet off the beaches, they would have known that it was not a suitable place for a, you know, refit center. Mm. Exactly. Don, I think we talked about that. I, I think I've read some stuff my dad wrote that, of course, they were very resentful of that. But like on the 
I think third Marine division, didn't they come back to after Bougainville? Did they come to Guadalcanal Dave? Do you remember after the Bougainville? Yeah, they did. They came back to, yeah, they came back to a place called Camp Teteri and Teteri is where they, they were there before they went to Bougainville. I'm pretty okay. sure they came back to Teteri so they after were, that. Their guys were being pressed into work details so continuously because Guadalcanal, as we've discussed, was being built up into a major staging base and training base that the guys couldn't get any rest after Bougainville. So I think when the first division, they wanted them to have more seclusion and they were trying to avoid that. And I think that was partially why Pavuvu was looked at and chosen. Yeah, probably, in, you know, the rest of the division, they thought they were going back to Australia. That yeah. changed very quickly and, you know, they weren't happy about that. Well, I, I think they get too soft in Australia again. Well, once again, though, you're coming off of Bougainville. We know Bougainville was hard, not only from the fighting, but from the rain and the mud and the camps being flooded mm. out. Could you imagine having trench foot, basically? You're wearing boondockers. Your socks are long gone. Um, boondockers, sometimes they fit. Sometimes they, they leave blisters. And then you got to go back. And before your feet can heal up and, and you you know get healthy, you're doing work detail. You're making sidewalks and roads and everything else and stacking stuff and still walking on your blister feet. It's like, um, I've been in knee deep mud for four weeks. Can I just dry my feet out in the sun for three days before I got to walk around on them for 12 hours a day? But it wasn't an option. It's just, mm. and that's the hardship that these young cats had to, to face. And it just, you know, going back to living history thing, I would go down to Alabama and spend three days there down at Fort Morgan doing Pacific events. And for whatever reason, my right boondocker would always give me big ass calluses on my my three feet my three feet my three toes and my right foot and i would come home late sunday night and i wouldn't be able to walk very well on monday then i would think that's just after three days in a modern reproduction pair of boondockers i could not imagine walking around in that stuff in worse climates for weeks and months on end it just it had to i just couldn't imagine and then trying to survive in that physical condition I actually had a, I took a, one tourist once, <clears throat> he, uh, when he arrived there and he had the uh, Marine boondockers of reproduction. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he'd worn much. And he said, oh, we'll go out today. And I said, I don't think you need to be wearing those boots. You know, <laughs> this is modern days. They, they make better boots nowadays. And he says, oh, I want to get a, get a feel of what they went through. I said, okay, whatever. So about, about three or four hours into it, up and down the hills, he couldn't walk. Yeah. He had some bad blisters. And he says, he says oh, I can't wear these things. <laughs> so i said yeah hence that's why we have modern boots even the, even <laughs> the most you want to get emerging but hey you know it's a different way of killing yourself i was gonna say even the most hardcore living historians if you if you get them right and ask them honestly they'll say yeah i got some dr shoals in these things <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny because i you know kind of going off topic again i go to the gym and i see these girls they're they're working out but they're wearing chuck taylor's and it's like you were you realize that technology of your shoe was like invented in 1939 there's better shoes with better arch support to wear when you're like doing squats and lifting heavy weights or you see younger kids running down the street and chuck taylor's is like must be nice that that doesn't affect your back at all me at 40 if i'm not wearing a pair of running shoes i can't do it but it's so crazy that the technology on that stuff has not changed one bit and to think that that was their PT gear back in the day. Oh, here, put on these uh, these Converse or these, um, oh, what was it, PF Flyers and go run four miles. And it's like, whew, come a long way. Mm. Dave, did you, uh, so 
Don, you know our friend Brian Dimitrovich? Absolutely. That Dave is who, aren't you the one who really showed Brian around Guadalcanal the first time, Dave? I don't know the first time. I think he, he was on Guadalcanal before, but he he contacted me, I think, 2019, maybe in 2018. Okay. He said him and his friends were coming to do another trip. I'm pretty sure Brian had been over there on a, an organized tour, mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. the big tour groups in the state. So he came over to bring his friends over. Yeah, so we um, we teed up, and uh, he went – I think he went another a week with a group, but I took him out for one day. Um, mm -hmm. And I took him to a few places that no one ever gets to go to. Cool. And, um, yeah, I've been speaking to Brian since. So, yeah, we I took him to a few good places there, especially a place called Briggs Outpost. If you see the movie or in the Pacific series, a guy called Ralph Briggs, platoon sergeant, he had a combat outpost. The combat outpost – was manned by the seventh marines the first battalion seventh marines it was punched out about a thousand maybe 1100 yards in front of their lines and on the night of 24th and 25th him and 46 other marines were up on the combat outpost up there uh, the regiment the battalion commander puller didn't want them out there so but they'd rotate a platoon from alpha from a company a every day so it's a bit demotivating so they, they rotate them, you know, every day. So they don't get too demotivated. So if you remember in the Pacific series, he's on the field phone. He's talking to Puller and he says, oh, yes, you know, the Japanese army. And he goes, how many? He said, the whole effing Japanese army. So oh, that many, he told him to punch out to the left and come back in. Well, no one ever gets to go to Briggs outpost because huh. it's part of a, um, uh, a police area, a police firing range. No. So I had access to it. So I got access to it in, I took him and his and his guys there. I've actually did one of my films on Briggs Outpost. So no group ever goes to Briggs Outpost. They're not allowed. So that's well, you know, benefits of working for the government over there. I could I could gain access to it. So yeah. I took him up there. But unfortunately for his guys, it was like their first day out. And we're talking <laughs> about acclimat acclimatization, and you know he's they showed up and they had all the reenactor stuff on, which is good. But yeah, they, they you can really know how how good and fit you are. It really kicks your butt that that climate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you say the percent humidity is? Ninety-eight. Uh, hundred fifty. <laughs> Alabama, you've been obviously you live in Alabama. Alabama, it's pretty damn bad here. Yeah, in August. Nah. No, doesn't way worse than Alabama, Alabama in the wet season. Times about five. Wow. Mm, it's bad. And, and the sun just – you're so close to the equator, too. That's what makes it so bad. You know, that sun direct, direct sunlight. I remember we did some jungle training in Panama once, and I thought it was bad. In Panama, I'm a couple of degrees above the equator. But this – I found the south, the south uh, west Pacific, or that area, it was is pretty brutal. If you get on the beach, you know, with the ocean breezes, it's a lot better. But once you get in that kunai grass, and that's a different story, especially when it's about five or six foot high, it's just like walking into an oven. Yeah, you're in an oven anyway, but it's like walking into it. Somebody's just increased the oven, you know, just threw a microwave inside of an oven because there's no breeze and that stuff, and it just. I'm just I'm trying to out. equate it in terms of Peleliu, which I think Peleliu is seven degrees off the equator, and yeah, probably probably we, roughly the same, I'd say. Okay, I'm thinking what wet and dry. Mm -hmm. Peleliu had a bit of one. had ocean breeze, doesn't it? In some yeah. places. I mean, yeah, it did. I mean, I was there in September but of 99, but it, it, it didn't hit 115 like it did when the 
you well, know, in the first brain division was there, but then all the, the vegetation had been blasted off too. There's no cover. Yeah. And that's yeah. what makes it worse. And when you, when you're on those barren ridges, those coral ridges there with no cover, very, very bad, very brutal with that direct sunlight on you. The footprint of Peleliu is smaller than Guadalcanal though, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Ways. And then obviously the ele- six by two. Yeah. And then the elevation's a hell of a lot lower too. And so you do have more wind coverage, but as you were just saying, and I'm sure you deal with this a lot too, with the tourists who come down there the people who want to refuse the basic concept that it's actually cooler to have long sleeve shirts on than it is to have your bare skin in a direct sunlight all day. Especially when the, when the mosquitoes start um, ripping into you. Mosquitoes aren't that bad once you go on the barren ridges, but like when I took Brian, which my Brian D and his, his friends, I took him down into the John Bassalon position and that's just thick swampy mess. And the mosquitoes just literally, I've never seen mosquitoes so so bad in my, in my life. And I've been in, you know, the jungles of Panama and Okinawa and the Philippines, but they're so thick, so thick that, you know, it, when you talk about swarms of mosquitoes or clouds of mosquitoes, they're literally clouds of mosquitoes. You open your mouth, you get a whole mouthful. Wow. And it's so bad. And that thick jungle, I used to think, oh, geez. When I was, when I was in that area, I, I could just read the Marines' minds. You could say, okay, B, company, you're up on the ridge. And I'm like, yeah. You know, see company you're down in the thick jungle. No, like, shit. Because <laughs> it's just a bad place. Very bad place. Is there a, well, I'm sure there is. I mean, I live in Florida. We have a tourist season. But is there a tourist battlefield season down in Guadalcanal? Or is it just kind of sporadic throughout the year? Or do you see more people do it in the summertime when their kids are off school? What What's the uh, influx, if you will, of the... Um, the tourist season for the actual battlefields down there? It's a good question. So the, the main, you get maybe two to three uh, organized groups and all come through in August because August is the anniversary and that's mm-hmm, when they have right. the ceremonies and that's when you get the most, but you get um, dribs and drabs, but the big organized tours are generally in August. That's when they come through, you know, April and May is to me the, some of the best times because it's, I guess if you, you can't equate dry with Guadalcanal, but it's drier than normal. Um, that's the best times to, to actually go. But if you want to see the ceremonies and things like the Marines are generally there during the anniversaries on August the 7th, but right now it's been shut down for, oh, it'd be almost three years yeah, COVID. because they've shut their country down, especially in COVID really starting to kick in, unfortunately in the uh, Solomon Islands, Solomon Islands has been COVID free for almost two years. Really? So you know, now they're last few months it's kicked in. You can imagine wow. now it's just going straight through the population. So they're looking at the 80th anniversary coming up in August, so I don't know how that's going to go. I, I doubt it's going to go and open up. Yeah, you don't have open next year. Not enough time for herd immunity to set in if they're just now getting it. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's closed to tourists at the moment. Well, I, I probably know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyhow just for the the listening audience. I would assume that you prefer to do the smaller groups with the hardcore audience who want to see the who want to see the more hardcore stuff and um, who know more detail about Guadalcanal. Cause you can probably, you know, having a group of guys like the Brian Dimitrovich is of the world who already have a lot of knowledge. It allows you to probably talk and have conversations at a greater detail than you would just, you know, a group of cats who have general knowledge and just want the cliff notes versions of it. Is that, was that a safe assumption on my part? Yeah. I mean, obviously I'd like to, to go with, with like minds. I mean, you can get, delve deeper and, and deeper into it but i don't mind the the people who have a general 
uh, interest in the, in it and actually teaching them about it because you know they don't know anything about it then you can write it and i try to when i get those groups i really bring the human element in mm-hmm. to do a, a to relate it i will go to an area and i'll i'll talk about it in general and not to get them bored with you know stats and you know this unit did this and you did that i would actually throw some personal stories in um this person was here and he, he this happened to him and you know, it brings a bit of personal touch and some people connect that way. So if that's your, your question, yes. I mean, I generally like to take the hardcore guys who, you know, I can really, really, it gets excited. Sure. And, and I mean, you know, I also don't like, I don't mind teaching the people who, um, who don't have a, a, a big knowledge of it. Now we know, as we we're just discussing, the footprint of Pelu is substantially smaller. And we all heard the stories about, you know, with the development construction, every time they break ground, they're, they're coming across, you know, remains, whether it's bones and fragments or what have you, do they have that in a, they, does the developed areas in Guadalcanal, do they sometimes run in that same issue when they're breaking ground, maybe to build a new store or, you know, uh, develop a new piece of property? Do they come across remains as often as they do down in uh, Peleliu? I don't know as often as as Peleliu, but like I stated earlier, Haneari was built quick and it was literally built over the bodies of thousands yeah. Japanese and a number of Americans. Um, in my office where I sat in, <clears throat> in Haniara, I used to think about them every day. It was the, especially guys of one seven with a the puller. There's about 18 of them still missing in the area. And there's an, about 24 guys of the first battalion, fifth Marines, which is my old unit when I was in the Marine Corps. And they're still missing that small area. I think um, I was told it's about 400 Marines missing on land. I don't know exactly how many U S army. So, Answer your question. From time to time, they do um, come up with remains. Most of the time, they're Japanese. Yeah, the Japanese, um, and and how the Japanese retrieve their remains over there is, they'll they'll find them, they'll send them to the Japanese consulate, and and once they potentially identify the Japanese, I mean, there's a couple of ways they do it. I mean, there are a number of ways. Obviously, with the equipment in the area they found in, and the size of the bones, um, and they don't send the, the bones back like we do uh, in the U.S. Like we, we send the DPAA, the, the, the U.S. military teams, the missing and <clears throat> missing teams over. They work there every year uh, recovering the, the, the remains of the missing U.S. servicemen. So what the Japanese do, they have a Shinto ceremony and they will cremate the, um, the remains and the ashes. And sometimes I think they send the ashes to Tokyo to the big shrine or sometimes they bury them on site. But yeah, there's remains found all the time. And, and wasn't, I think, 2015 or maybe 2016, they found a U.S. soldier, a guy called Ross. They found, he was a, in the 35th Regiment. They found him um, mm-hmm. near uh, the Gifu. So I got a friend, Jeff Rucker. He's uh, written a, a good book about the, um, the missing Marines of Guadalcanal. And uh, we're always on the lookout for the missing Marines and, and the missing U.S. servicemen in general. But they're, they're there and they, they are locating them. So when I was there, they located a number of them. So hopefully they'll be identified soon. Is there a particular piece of artifact that you have come across um, during your time doing these tours that you would consider a little more rare or less, you know, findable, I guess, for lack of a better term? Because obviously we all listen to this podcast. We're, we all, a lot of us are military collectors and have different things around. Is there a particular um, item that you've come across you know, even if you left it where you found it, that you just don't see that often that sticks out in your mind? Um, 
I mean, I found per- anything personalized. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you know, generally with, with, with anything personalized, especially with dog tag. I mean, there's dog tags found there all the time. Um, dog tags are good to find. Um, I had a, a mess tin once. It had a, it was an old style, 1918. So it was a probably a Marine one. And it had a guy's name on it. It said, Tony loves, no, something, uh, Van, Van Hooten loves Tony, <laughs> T-O-N-I. So I, I, I looked through the records of Van Hooten. I can't find that. And there was another fella. You ever seen the old arcade? They used to have the arcade tokens. They had like a good luck tokens. They had like a little horseshoe on them. And yeah. they used to make yeah. them. Apparently you put the, they had them in the forties and fifties and sixties. And, you know, I think they were aluminum. I found one of them once. Um, couldn't identify. It wasn't a Marine. It was a U.S. Army. Because it said USA. And it actually had this serial number. I can't huh. locate that one. But anything personalized, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like that type of stuff. And remember, the, it brings me the point about the dog tags. There's a lot of, I'd say, I would say that, hundreds of dog tags are located on Guadalupe Canal every year. And locals used to bring them to me and I'd have a look at them. And, you know, you look at the name and the first thing I would do is see if it was a missing Marine or Army guy. And you'd find out that Guadalcanal is a large logistical and training base. So where these locals will find them, they'll find them in the garbage dumps. Uh, you, could, you could see the scenario right now, especially the, the first Marine uh, dog tags come out, or the U.S. Army dog tags had the next of kin on them. I think they changed it 43. And the next of kin, obviously, they didn't think it was a good idea. So I could just see some clerk there. All right, everyone turn the dog tags in, you get new dog tags. Yep. And all these clerks sitting there with hundreds of dog tags. What am I going to do with them? I'm going to throw them in the garbage. I'm going to throw them in the dump. You know, right. some years later, locals dig them up. Oh, look at all these dog tags. Now, are these the early Marine Corps Navy dog tags, the small round ones? Or are these the more modern ones that we're all familiar with? Or do you see both? Well, the, the early, yeah, the early Marine dog tags had the thumbprint. You know, yeah. To put the thumbprint on the back. I mean, you do find some of them. But mainly a lot of ones they find are the U.S. Army style. Yeah, with the. Had the next of kin on them. So they went the year what it's 43, you don't know what month, they took the next to can off, thinking it's probably not the best idea to have your next to can on there in, in the address. You know, it's interesting you say that because my grandfather fought in Europe. Um, he did grave registration. And the dog tags I use when I do my army living history are exact replicas of his. And when I was filling out the form, I saw that his next to kin was my grandmother's father. Um, my grandfather left the coal mines of Kentucky, started working at a dairy farm in Richwood, Kentucky that my grandmother's father owned. And then they met, they got married and he went off to war. And I always, I always struck it as bizarre because I found this out long after both my grandparents had passed away. I was like, did my grandfather kind of have a falling out with his family that he would put his father-in-law as the next of kin on his dog tags? Or was it they lived such in deep Eastern Kentucky that they had no phones and you know, probably since my grandmother's father was kind of more well-to-do, if he just figured it's easier to get a hold of him if something were to happen to me. And sadly, that's one of those things I can't ask. But I never realized that it was shortly after 43 that they took the next to Ken off there. So that helps me date my grandfather's dog tags that he has. You have to double-check it, but I'm pretty sure it was around 43. Um, but I know it's some stage during the war they didn't take them off. They, yeah. they started with them. Um, they took them off. I've done some research. I've been able to find photo scan copies of his enlistment um, papers where he joined in Cincinnati, but I think a majority of his records were in that location that caught fire in the mid-90s, so I have such a hard time of finding anything of his online. Yeah, I do too. My grandfather was in the Army in Europe. 
Henry? It's been a great conversation, man. I'm, I'm really wanting to go to Guadalcanal one day. We'll have to we'll have to figure that out. First off, me, you, and Jeff have to get together, and meet each other in person for at least once. <laughs> yeah. But then we'll travel. Probably, then we'll play. I'll tell you how to get there from the states. Okay. You take a big. Boat. No, you don't take a boat anymore. Um, they generally long. fly into uh, Fiji, obviously from the west coast. They fly into Fiji, and then from Fiji you can fly straight into Haniara. So I have one of my best friends, or with my best friend from kindergarten, he come visit me out there when I was there, which was which actually quite good. But yeah, most of the tour groups, they fly into Fiji and then for Fiji. Well, that's Nandi, they call it the airport, Nandi in Fiji, and they fly straight into Haniara. So that's it's not that hard. That's a straighter shot than when I went to Peleliu. Yeah, yeah, it's not that hard. I mean, you don't have to take it like a banana boat. <laughs> well, they call it yeah. banana boats. There. They, they, some guys jump in the little banana boats. They go out to Tulagi, which is about 20 miles away. So you're mm -hmm. taking your life in your own hand with a banana boat, but anyway. They, they seem to do quite well every day. Wow. Is is battlefield tourism, is that a substantial part of the economy on Guadalcanal, or what's their primary you know, GDP made up of? Well, for years, people were trying to get the tourism and battlefield tourism to, to kick off in the Solomon Islands, and it's an it's untouched gold mine, but you can never get um, started for whatever reason or the other, but I don't know if they're a GDP. I think um, fishing and um, farm or logging is probably the biggest uh, export they have. You know, I would assume the tourism there that. picked up a little bit after the HBO Pacific series came out. Um, no, I think you'll see. I don't. I don't know. I don't think it would come up that much um, with the tourism. It's just, it's just a long place to go. I mean, it's a pretty straight shot. It yeah. just costs a bit of money. And, and the hotels are good. I mean, you got, you know, Western-style hotels, and, you know, it's of higher qualities, and yeah, there's nothing nothing bad about it. And the crime rate is probably the lowest you can think in the Pacific. Well, and then if you go to Papua New Guinea, Port Moresby, it's a different story, but Paniari is hardly any crime rate. It's great for And they love, Melanesians love tourism. Sure. It's good people. They're real, real good people. They're good people to know. They'll they'll really look after you. Yeah. I sound like I'm a Solomon Island tour guy or working for Solomon Island Department of Tourism. <laughs> well, well, hopefully no. they'll open up soon. Yeah, hope they will. Yeah, hopefully. Um hopefully the whole world gets back to oh, yeah. back to semblance from now with what's going on in Ukraine and all that. Lord only knows. But uh I I you know Whenever I talk to people who do tour guides of battlefields, whether it's European theater or Pacific theater operations, and I know I said on this podcast multiple times, but I'll say it again. To me, it's just reading these books that we read, you know, me, Jeff, Henry, we're constantly reading um, books. I'm more into the firsthand accounts and, you know, the personal aspect, kind of like you're talking about when you do your battlefield tours, how you talk about the personal side, it's easier to relate to. But I just, I can only because I haven't done it yet, and I know Henry's been to Peleliu, I think I anticipate, like, if I ever get the chance to go one of these battlefield tours, I it would probably just, I'd just probably stand there dumbfounded just seeing it in true color and feeling the heat and the, you know, or if you're in Europe, feeling the environment and just seeing it and trying to take it all in, it probably brings all the stuff that I've ever read into more focus and understanding and that just... 
to me, I don't know why, every time I talk about Battlefields, I just get hung up on the idea of I can't imagine being there in real life, even modern day, and just seeing these areas that I've read so much about. Yeah, I see that in, in Bloody Ridge. Bloody Ridge is a great um, example. I mean, it's fairly well preserved too. And I used to, uh, I'll probably calculate, I've been over the Bloody Ridge itself over 300 times. And sometimes after work, I just drive up to Bloody Ridge and sit there in the afternoon. It's such a peaceful, peaceful place. And, but I could, I used to go there at night too, to try to picture how it was during the battle. And you could almost just hear it. And it's just a small confined area too. And yeah, he just really brings you back to reality when he's set up there. That's got to be a haunting experience to do that at night. Yeah, especially because, you know, that was uh, – I, I visited all the battlefields at night because that's when the majority of the fights were going on at night. So it gives you a, a different appreciation of, of the, the battlefield itself. And, you know, when you read the memoirs, they said, oh, you know, at night they were screaming out of the jungle and the flares were going off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can't see your hand in front of your face and literally you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can just imagine. What's the footprint of bloody nose Ridge? Is it 50 yards? Is it bigger than that? Smaller than that? I know it's kind it's of about 600. Oblong. Yeah. It, it's 16, it's 1600 yards long. Yeah. It looks like a the Japanese called the centipede because it looks like a centipede. It's squiggly and it's got uh, three or four spurs off and it replicates the legs. It comes off. Um, yeah, so you've got hill one and hill two. Oh, that's right, because they uh, fell back to a final position. Yeah, the way the I, I explained it to my other uh, uh, the other day on the War Two TV, I was talking about um, when I, some of the hills you'll see hill thirty five, hill fifty three, anything it was higher than fifty three meters or fifty three feet. So how the Marines did it then? They started out and they numbered them in order. So Hill 1 started with Hill 1, Bloody Ridge, and Hill 2. Then went all the way, and they started moving the way uh, west. Hill 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, in order. And elevation-wise, when the Army came, it, like it is nowadays, it's elevation-wise. It's in feet then instead of meters like it is now. So it's Hill 1 is basically um, 90, and Hill 2 is 123 feet. Hmm. So that was a, in, in Edson's uh, final stand, or the command post is Hill, hill 2. But yeah, Bloody Ridge is yeah, it's quite quite um it's not that high either. Not that high. How far was it from Henderson Field? Because I know that was kind of like an outpost that, that keep the Japanese from coming from that direction. How far about is it? About a thousand from... yards. So it's not it's right far at all. I've, I've got some great photos. Is uh, one it, it shows it. And it's just it's a beeline straight to um, Henderson Field because the Japanese when they did a southern attack. You know, their, their tactics are to take the path to least resistance. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, their intel said, and they were very much correct, that there was no one on Bloody Ridge. It was a small outpost of some engineers. So if you were going to move a, a large um, unit of, of troops at night through the jungle, you want to hit a clear line, uh, a defining line or, or, or clear avenue. And they did. That would have gave them a clear avenue. If they hit that ridge, it went straight into um, Henderson Field. It's almost like a a dagger pointed straight at Henderson Field. It was actually a, a good plan. But then Edson, so you, Edson got up there first. The main airfield at Haniara where, where you would fly into now, is is that the old Henderson Field? Yes. I mean, the Henderson Field, the, the original airstrip sits right beside the, the main airstrip. Now, I know. It's right yeah. beside it. You can still okay. see the 1943 tower. The remnants of the 1943 tower is, is still there. Wow. Um, yeah, it's exact same spot. They've extended the runway, obviously, to um, sure. accommodate, you know, modern jets. 
Because if you look at it now, the, the, the runway is extended more, and it goes all the way to almost uh, Alligator Creek. During the time okay. of the Bible, it didn't go all the way to Alligator Creek. Didn't wasn't that far. I've seen you photos know. of that tower. When you say tower, <laughs> um, that's it's it a rudimentary tower at best. I mean, it's almost scaffolding with some plywood atop. I mean, it wasn't anything sophisticated by any stretch of the imagination. No, no, no. That was the second tower. That was the good tower. <laughs> the good one. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for your time and um, thank everybody else for listening. I just do, I do want to put out there, I had to stop the YouTube recording because for some reason when I was broadcasting it, you guys heard the lag at the beginning of the show. And um, our major form of consumption of this podcast is the audible format. So I stopped the live streaming on YouTube just so that we can provide the quality format to our audio listeners because that's where the majority of you all listen. And I want to thank each and every one of you. Our numbers are growing, and I know that's a large part due to the great guests we have on here, such as Dave Holland, Dave for coming on. And I do want to remind everybody, if you want to support the show, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and uh, sign up for, for Patreon, and you can use that to help uh, to support the show and um, you know spread the word and all that good stuff. You can find our shirts on there and everything else. And um, Dave, do you have any social media or any uh, things you want to send people to where they can find you at? Yeah, it's like the first of the show. I have a, a Facebook site called Guadalcanal Walking the Battlefield. And I update that, you know, every once in uh, one or two days. Uh, it has a lot of then and now photos on it. I try to supply original uh, material that no one's probably nice. seen before on it. And I also have a, a YouTube site called Walking or Guadalcanal walking a battlefield. And basically it's designed for people who's never going to get to go to Guadalcanal. It's just a walking uh, battlefield tour. And someone like one viewer said it's history with no frills. So it's, I filmed it on a iPhone seven. I edited it on an iPhone seven and I uploaded it on Solomon Island internet. So it's amazing. <laughs> sitting there. I've watched some of the videos. I think I love the one on alligator Creek and I love it. It's a great video. And as I always saw that video before I knew you Dave, <laughs> and as always, for those of you listening, if you head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and you look for this episode, we will have all the links so you can go view Dave's uh, Facebook page and YouTube channel. Dave Holland, thank you so much for coming on. And before we go, Henry, do you have anything you need to plug that's coming up anytime soon? Uh, got the LOA thing, the, the March 16th podcast. I mean, I'm not going to be part of it, but it's the Richard Frank promoting that. Yep. That we talked about um and so more information more information on the um on that is available on our website and on our facebook page so if you guys are listening and you want to get information on the um that presentation and how to register you can do that over at wtspworldwar2.com that's wtspworldwar2.com that's library of america's correct yes library of america and they're they're putting on a great online um demonstration and um, conference with questionnaires and all that. And so head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and you can register there. Dave, thank you so much. Again, anything coming up you want to plug? Oh, no, not really. But um, thanks again for having me on your show and hope the viewers got something out of it or listeners got something out of it today. Absolutely. We enjoy bringing content that uh, people can provide for Santa accounts. And it's always interesting to hear about, you know, the battlefield tourism and just once again, being on those battlefields. And uh, Jeff should be back with us next week. And um, once again, I want to thank everybody for your continued support. And we will talk to you all next week. So uh, thank you so much. 
and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>